صلى الله عليك يا رسول الله صلى الله وسلم عليك يا سيدي ويا مولاي وابن مولاي يا أبا عبد الله يا رحمة الله الواسعة ويا باب نجاة الأمة ويا عبرة كل مؤمن ومؤمنة ما خاب والله من تمسك بكم وأمنا من لجأ والتجأ إليكم يا ليتنا يا ليتنا كنا معكم سادتي فنفوز فوزا عظيما قال الله تعالى في محكم كتابه الكريم وقوله الحق وهو أصدق الصادقين أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم أم كنتم شهداء إذ حضر يعقوب الموت إذ قال لبنيه ما تعبدون من بعدي قالوا نعبد إلهك وإله آبائك إبراهيم وإسماعيل وإسحاق إلها واحدا ونحن له مسلمون so when you're gathering with the remembrance of Muhammad and Ali Muhammad, as a gift to the soul of Sayyidina wa Mawlana Abu Abdullah al Hussein and his 72 companions recite the second salawat. For Allah to shower onto this gathering with His infinite mercy and compassion and to hasten the reappearance of our 12th Imam, recite the third salawat with the loudest of your voices. Oprah 
lived in one of the most secured buildings in the world. Being one of the wealthiest women in America, she lived on the 57th floor of a sky rise in Chicago. She had the entire floor to herself, living in one of the most secured buildings in the world. She also had her own private security. She says, I would come home extremely tired, exhausted, but I wouldn't be able to fall asleep at night. Being one of the wealthiest, most successful women in America, she still could not fall asleep. She says, some nights I would take my personal security I would go and check into a nearby hotel and there I would fall asleep at peace. She says, for the longest time, I didn't know why I couldn't fall asleep at night. In my own home. But how I fell asleep so peacefully at a hotel room. She says, I kept telling myself it's because nobody knows I've checked into this hotel. Makes me feel safer. Years later, she hosted a psychiatrist at her show who told her that traumatic experiences that our childhood are stored in the back of our minds as a subconscious defense mechanism. We're not aware that this incident is stored in the back of our minds, but yet it comes back to us as adults, well into our 40s and 50s. Right there and then, she says, I had a moment of realization. I remembered that as a child, I lived with my grandmother. Oprah's mom was a housemaid making $50 a week. And she could not afford an extra mouth to feed. So she lived with her grandparents. Her grandfather had dementia. She says, I remembered that as a child, when I was trying to fall asleep at night, I would hear the footsteps of my grandfather leaving his bedroom and walking into our bedroom while she slept next to her grandmother. She said, as he would approach our bedroom, I would sense fear. He would come every night and try to choke my grandmother to death. She said, before he would arrive, my grandmother would wake up and she would kind of refrain him from doing so until one night, She was asleep, he came, he made his way, he put his hands around her neck and he started choking her to death. She was struggling for her life and here's a five-year-old girl watching and witnessing all of this. She was fighting for her life until she runs out of the room, she opens the door of the house and she starts calling their neighbor. Cousin Henry, 
keeps calling Henry. Henry shows up after a while but couldn't do much because Henry was blind. She says, after that, we went and we got a lock on our bedroom. But for my entire childhood, I would sleep with one eye open, thinking somehow my grandfather is going to end up in the room and choke one of us to death. So when the psychiatrist said this to her, she put one and one together and realized that, well, in her 40s and 50s, while she was one of the wealthiest women in America, one of the most successful women in America, living in one of the most secure buildings around the world, she was still traumatized. Every year, my dear friends, brothers and sisters, Nearly 130 million children are born around the world. Some of them are born into the loving arms of their parents, cradled with compassion, with care. And some of them from that moment experience rejection Abuse. Some children are born into wealth. Some children are born into honorable, decent families, stable life. And some were not planned. Or they are born in poverty. Some of them do not even have a family. They will never sense love, affection, and belonging. Some children are raised with love and affection and respect, while others are raised with fear, rejection, and abuse. Whatever the experience may be, whether good or bad, what is for certain is that those experiences will make who we are for the rest of our lives. You would not believe the amount of emails that I receive sometimes on daily basis of people speaking to me about their childhood and the trauma they experience as children and teenagers or while they were children and how that's affecting their lives today. Asking me, Sayyid, I really cannot forgive my parents. It's very difficult for me to have to face my mother, to have to face my father, knowing how I was abused and neglected. Or some of them today, as we speak, growing up into a household of abuse. And this topic is rarely addressed. It is rarely talked about. And I'm here to remind you all why we gather in, so, in such nights. While I am extremely proud, I cannot tell you how proud I am to see that the majority of the audience from the first night is wearing black eager to shed tears for Aba Abdullah al Hussein, to join his mother Fatima to Zahra and Aza in solidarity. But let us remind ourselves of the mission statement of Imam al Hussein. Why was it that Imam al Hussein embarked on this journey? 
Why did he leave the city of Medina? He says to us very clearly, and I've said this, we should make sure that we write this in the entrance of every single one of our majalis so that when we enter a majlis and when we leave a majlis, we remind ourselves with the mission statement of Imam al-Hussein. And we do not deviate away from his mission statement. We stay focused. He says, إِنِّي لَمْ أَخْرُجْ أَشْرًا وَلَا بَطِرًا وَلَا مُفْسِدًا I did not embark on this journey for the sake of fame or popularity or worldly gain. In fact, he was very clear that I know for a fact that I'm not going to be physically victorious in this battle. He says on many occasions in his letters that whoever comes and joins the camp of Abu Abdullah al-Hussein will not receive money and land and victory. You will receive something much greater, much more precious, and that is martyrdom. As-shahadatu fi sabilillah. But I embarked for the sake of بَلْ خَرَجْتُ لِطَلَبِ الْإِصْلَاحِ فِي أُمَّةِ جَدِّي رَسُولِ اللَّهِ To perfect the ummah of my grandfather Rasulullah. How, ya Aba Abdullah? لِكَيْ آمُرَ بِالْمَعْرُوفِ To enjoin the good. وَأَنْهَا عَنِ الْمُنْكَرِ And to forbid evil. There is a lot of evil. In our families, in our communities, in our behavior. And I believe that our youth especially are eager to hear what Islam has to say about such topics. Some of them are under the impression that Islam has no opinion on childhood trauma or how you ought to raise a family take care of your children and that's got to change we cannot continue to remain silent on such topics I remember in 2007 2008 I visited Iraq, specifically the city of Aba Abdullah al-Hussein, Karbala, the holy city of Karbala, about a few miles away from the shrine of Imam al-Hussein. This is a real story, and I have videos to share with you, and I'm planning to share them soon. We were driving looking for orphans. We in the middle of, literally in the middle of nowhere, we saw a little shack. A couple of bricks on top of each other. There was no door. There was a, a cloth being used as a protection for the, for the actual door, replacing a door. And they used leaves, palm tree leaves, as the roof for this little shack. Loose dogs running around. So we stopped the vehicle, somebody left the car and went and called out, is there anybody in this little shack? And next thing you know, six kids popped out of that place. None of them had shoes. None of them had proper clothing. The youngest was an infant. And the eldest was a 14-year-old girl. Listen to me, brothers and sisters. Listen. We spoke to them. It's a very long story. And I'll share it with you briefly. This family's father was a maintenance manager at a Husseinian in Baghdad. He received a letter, quit your job or you will be killed. And I was close to the time of Muharram. And you know who, how we are. Nothing is going to stop you from the khidmah of Aba Abdullah al-Hussein. 
So he continued to attend to the Husayniyyah and to the needs of the people. One day as he walked out of the Husayniyyah, they shot him dead in the streets. So he fell dead. They buried him. They send another letter to their mom. Move out of this neighborhood or else you will be killed. A single woman, a widow, with a bunch of orphans. She was preparing to leave, but she didn't leave the next day. She took her kids to school. She was carrying the infant on her, in her lap, walking back to the house. They shot her dead in the middle of the streets. Left the infant on her chest, crying, weeping. By the time those kids left the school to attend to their mom's dead body, the dogs had ripped her into pieces. At the time, I didn't know any better. I thought the only thing those kids needed was for us to get them out of that little shack. Take them to an orphanage. Give them food. Give them clothes. Take care of them. Years later, I read an article in the New York Times that says, believe it or not, thousands of people in this country, thousands upon thousands of people in this nation hate the 4th of July. They cannot stand the 4th of July while the rest of us are celebrating and we're watching the fireworks and right why why do they hate the 4th of July because it reminds them of a school shooting it reminds them of a drive-by shooting it reminds them of Afghanistan or Iraq veterans of war and this is a real issue in this country. A lot of people suffer on the 4th of July. Yet we don't know about this. So I was thinking to myself. I was reminded of those orphans. Imagine. Every time they hear a sound. Every time they see footage on TV. Every time they hear of death or murder. What happens to those kids? And then I thought to myself. There are thousands, hundreds of thousands of kids in Iraq, in Afghanistan, in Lebanon, in Kashmir, in Yemen. How will they ever have a normal life? How can they ever feel peace? Imagine the trauma that those kids will grow up with. And I want to say this for a moment, brothers and sisters. We gather and we cry for the orphans of Imam al-Hussein. For the tragedy of Imam al-Hussein. But do we stop for a moment and cry for the tragedy of our Muslim brothers and sisters? While we think of the orphans of Imam al-Hussein and how they had no home and they had no food and they had no shelter and they had no protection and there was no one to protect them. There are millions of orphans today living in the land of Imam al-Hussein who do not have protection. Who do not have shelter. They don't have food. They don't have security. They don't have a sense of belonging. If we attend the majalis of Imam al-Hussein years in, years out, and it does not change the way we behave. It does not give us the spirit, the Husseini spirit. Those majalis are then useless. 
And we live in this country and we constantly just think about ourselves. We've become so selfish. It's all about me, my kids, my home, my children, what we wear, how we dress, how we travel. We rarely pause and think, we have enough. Allah has blessed us. We don't need any more. Let us share what we got. Let's share it with others. Let's be more compassionate. Another extremely touching story that I want to share with you before I engage in my topic is a story of a five-year-old child named Jesse. Jesse was born into a family of multi-generational child trafficking. Abuse. In an unbelievable way. I mean, this is, this is as, bad as, it, as bad as it gets. It just doesn't get better. At the age five, he was trafficked so much that he was picked up by the police, taken to a foster home. At the age five. <clears throat> He's taken into foster home, from foster home to another until many attempts fail. They take him to a foster home with a family that takes care of kids with special needs. And he's there with another nine kids. This is a true story, by the way. And there he, he's being abused every day. Physically beaten every day. He's not being fed just because of extremely small, petty little things. Many nights, he's forced to sleep outside in the chicken coop. Many nights, he tries to run away from the house, but they strip him away from his clothes so he can't run away. He's only left with his underwear. So one day, he is running in the middle of the winter. He's running outside on the road. Barefoot, doesn't have anything to wear, with his underwear, a little kid. And the deputy sheriff picks him up and he says, what are you doing? You're running in the middle of the street? And he explains to the deputy sheriff of, of the trauma, of the abuse that he's facing with his foster parents. And the deputy sheriff tells him, you're lying. Instead of being grateful to those people, you're, you're accusing them? Shame on you, and he takes him back. When he takes him back, the foster father beats him so much that he ends up at the hospital. Now, when he ends up at the hospital, he gets out, and he goes to another foster home, and he's taken care of until Jesse makes it to high school many years later, and he's doing very well, except there is one problem. Jesse had a very good math teacher, and the math teacher was very nice to him, but Jesse had a problem with the math teacher. Every time the math teacher would walk around the class, Jesse would get into a fight with him. They actually got into physical fistfights. He's taken to the principal's office. What are you doing? Why? I don't know. I have no idea. Until they realized, listen to this, this is unbelievable. Until they realized that the math teacher was using the same deodorant as the foster father. The father at the foster home. And as soon as this math teacher would walk around and he would smell the scent, 
he would go into the mode of fear or fright or fight and he would want to protect himself not knowing what he was even doing this is how important this topic is now many of you might be thinking said why are you using such extreme examples the vast majority of us have not experienced this nor will experience this why don't we use more relatable examples and i'll tell you why number 1 it's because we need to be more thankful we need to be more grateful to allah subhanahu wa ta'ala you know i see some kids why are you so upset with your parents they don't buy me an iphone 13 all my friends have an iphone 13 i don't have one really is that your problem now And one way to be grateful, brothers and sisters, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Wal-Asr. You've all memorized the surah. Wal-Asr. Inna al-insana illa al-ladheena amanu wa amilu salihat Iman is followed by what? Salah? No. Siyam? No. Hajj? No. Amilu salihat, good humanitarian deeds. In fact, if you want to know your level of iman, put yourself on this specific scale. Many people are millionaires. They have a lot of money. He'll pray salat al-layl. He will go to ziyarah. But he will not help the needy. He will not think of the poor. This iman is incomplete. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Let us, we, we hear stories about refugees and the border crisis and other people and we don't care. We don't care what goes in the life of other people. I read this article about two siblings, Syrian refugees. They were separated, put into two different camps. The elder brother got himself in so much trouble in every single camp. And they would, they would ask him why. He wouldn't say anything. Until he ended up at a camp where he found his sister. He was reunited with his sister. Then he was okay. Then he was at ease. There are such people that live around us today. What have we done for them? In fact, brothers and sisters, the most beautiful way, the most meaningful way for us to propagate the religion of Islam, a way for us to enhance the reputation of Islam, make Islam lovable in this society is by helping others who are in need. And that is what Zaman International is doing. And wallahi, this is a cause that needs to be replicated in every city and state in this country. And I say this from the member of Imam Al-Hussein. Because this is a type of work that we need to be engaged in. Alhamdulillah, we have many centers and Husseiniyat and facilities. It is time for us as Muslims to give back to this society. To help others. To show the compassion of Islam. 
the mercy of Islam. So number one, for us to be grateful, thankful, and to show that in our practice. Number two, please pay attention to this extremely delicate point. For us to have a better relationship with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, brothers and sisters, we have to learn how to count our blessings. Some of us, we are extremely blessed, but we don't know. One of our most meaningful and powerful supplications by Imam Musa ibn Ja'far is called Dua Jawshan al-Saghir. Some of you may have read this Dua. You've read Jawshan al-Kabir on the nights of Ramadan. It's a long Dua. There is another Dua called Jawshan al-Saghir where the Imam counts his blessings. It's extremely important for you to read this Dua. Why? Because you're not aware of such blessings that you live in today. For example, the Imam says, Ya Allah, listen, brothers and sisters, my younger brothers, listen to me. He says, Ya Allah, how many people today are suffering in prisons, in prison cells, solitary confinement, and I'm not there. So I thank you for that. Oh Allah, how many people are burnt? His house was burnt. Has he got burnt? He got into a fire. He's in pain. Oh Allah, I don't, I'm not suffering from that, so I thank you for that. Oh Allah, how many people have become fugitives around the world, running away? They don't have a home. They don't feel safe. I have a home. I feel safe. I thank you for that. Oh Allah, how many people are being chased by the enemies? They don't know if they're going to live the next day or not. And I don't have to deal with that, so I thank you for that. How many people are suffering from injuries? How many people are suffering from illnesses? How many people are hungry and not being able to eat? How many people are desperate to look at the face of their children, but they're kept away from them? But I am blessed by you not to be in any of those situations. فَلَكَ الْحَمْدُ يَا رَبِّ مِنْ مُقْتَدِرٍ لَا يُغْلَبْ وَذِي أَنَاتٍ لَا يَعْجَلْ صَلِّ عَلَى مُحَمَّدٍ وَآلِ مُحَمَّدٍ وَاجْعَلْنِي لِآلَائِكَ مِنَ الذَّاكِرِينَ Allah, allow me to constantly remind myself of such blessings. Number two, it is for us to give benefit of the doubt to others. Sometimes when you meet people and they're not okay, they don't seem okay. So, oh, this guy's crazy, man. He's mental. I don't want to deal with him. Maybe they suffer from trauma. Try to help them. Rasulullah, the religion of Islam, teaches us sadaqah. Sadaqah is not only money. In fact, a lot of people can give money. Sadaqah could be a word. Sadaqah could be advice. Sadaqah is love that you show to somebody. Care that you show to somebody. That's a much more meaningful form of sadaqah. Don't say, oh, I can't give sadaqah. I don't have money. Especially you younger brothers and sisters, if you come across somebody at school who's suffering and you can tell, try, try to help them. And lastly, I want to conclude with this. When it comes to childhood trauma, I have four points to share with you. But before I do that, 
I want to tell you that the Holy Quran in many occasions, on many occasions emphasizes on the child-parent relationship. On many occasions. And he highlights two of extremely exceptional men within the Holy Quran who are exceptional parents, fathers. One of them is Ya'qub, Surah Al-Baqarah, Ayah 135, the ayah that I began with. Ya'qub spent time talking to his kids from the moment that they were born until the moment he was on his deathbed. Let me read this ayah to you one more time. This is Ya'qub on his deathbed. You know Ya'qub, right? You know the story of Ya'qub and his family and his children, correct? Ya'qub is the father of whom? Whom? There you go, Yusuf. You know the tribulations they went through and how they were tested. This prophet of God was tested in, in his children with his own sons. Those brothers, out of jealousy, took Yusuf and they sold him as a slave. Then they came back to their father, oh father, the sheep, the, the wolf ate him. And Yaqub spent his whole life crying for Yusuf. And what, what his sons had done, not just Yusuf. So he spent time talking to them because you know when Yusuf was very young, he saw the dream, he went to his father. His father, he told the dream to his father. His father was trying to manage the situation. Anyways, we can't talk about the story of Yusuf right now. But this is the last moments of the life of Yaqub. Am kuntum shuhada? Oh, you Muslims, were you witnesses to Yaqub when he was on his deathbed? Of course they weren't. Yaqub was thousands of years prior to the Muslims. Correct? Allah is telling them, were you not a witness? Let me tell you. And by Allah... Drawing this picture for the Muslims, he's me it's meant to connect them to the story of Ya'qub. Take lessons from the story of Ya'qub. Learn from the story of Ya'qub. Am kuntum Ya'qub Ya'qub was on his death deathbed. He told his sons, those troublemakers, What will you worship after me? We will worship your Lord. And the Lord of your father, Ibrahim, Muslimun. And we have become Muslim. Muslim, not like me and you. We call ourselves Muslim. Muslim means submissive. Now imagine if you are Yaqub and this is what your kids did. Will you talk to them? Or will you give up on them? Let's be real. He didn't give up on them. Even when he knew they had lied, he didn't give up on them. He maintained his relationship with them. And when they were reunited with Yusuf, and Yusuf forgave them, this is what Yaqub says. So he spent a whole lifetime speaking to them, advising them, taking care of them. But the results, Allah says in the Quran, that they say, we will worship Allah and we now have become Muslim, submissive to Allah. We will no longer sin. We submit to the will of Allah. The other is Luqman. The whole surah is a discussion between Luqman, the wise, and his son. And the advice that he gives him. Look at the relationship of the Ahlul Bayt with their children. Imam Al Hussein, before he sends out Qasim, okay, Qasim is going, he's gonna become a martyr. We all know this. And we all know that Qasim knew the value of becoming a martyr, especially in defense of Imam Al Hussein, the Imam of his time. But the Imam wants to show the world that this guy is not a child. He's been groomed and taught 
So in front of everyone, and for the course of history, he asks him, Ya Qasim, you're about to go and give your life. You're about to become a martyr. How do you find this death that is fast approaching you? And the kid, without hesitation, and he, he didn't give a whole speech. He said a few words, but look how meaningful those few words are. How intelligent, bright, determined this child was. As long as I am in your defense, it's sweeter than honey. This is because of the tarbiyah in the school of Imam al-Hussein. Not only in the school of Imam al-Hussein. I'll, I'll give you two quick stories of our ulama. One of our greatest ulama, he had pain in his eyes. Blurred vision. So he told his son, he was very old, he told his son, go fetch me a doctor. The doctor came, apparently he did a surgery, a quick one, and left. A week later, this alim, this grand alim, tells his son, I've become blind. I no longer can see. So imagine, now his son is furious, he's upset. I'm going to go and teach this doctor a lesson. He says, no. No, my son. Do not do that. He made a mistake. He's fallible. In fact, do not tell anyone until I die. Because people love me. I have a lot of followers. If they know what he's done, they're going to give him trouble. Imagine the discipline of the son that he never told a single soul. He took his father who had become blind in the last days of his life around, protecting the situation in a way where nobody found out that this alam was blind. This is the tarbiyah in the school of Imam al-Husayn. Another alim, his stories mentioned in the books. He had guests, so he told his son, Oh, my son, go fetch us a watermelon. We have guests, go bring a watermelon. So the guy went, the, the son went, and he got a watermelon, but it was very small. So his son told him, Son, we have a lot of guests, go bring a bigger watermelon. He said, Yes. He went, came back, again, a small one. He said, Son, I told you, bring a bigger one. So he said, yes. He went back, again, a little one. Father's like, apparently my son has become an idiot. When the guests leave, he says, son, why didn't you bring a bigger one? He says, father, we didn't have another one. I kept going back and forth bringing the same one. I didn't want to embarrass you in front of them and say, we only have one watermelon. This is the tarbiyah of the school of Imam al-Husayn. How does it happen? Inshallah, and the four points I will quickly mention, inshallah, and finish for this evening. Number one, neglect. Neglect is real. Brothers and sisters, parents, wherever you are and wherever you hear me, take neglect extremely seriously. Do not neglect your children. Especially nowadays with the iPhones and the... Oof, Allahu Akbar. I've seen parents today making money off their kids. They dress their kids. Let's take some photos, post them online. That's it. That's what they need from their kids. That's the attention they... So, so they get likes on Instagram. So I show the whole world that we're all smiling. How many of you have heard of cutting? All of you. You've seen kids do it. You know, cutting is real. I, I never understood cutting. Why would somebody just, why would they do that? And they bleed. Go read about it. It's because of neglect. If you cut yourself, you will be in pain. 
When that kid who is neglected cuts him or herself, they will not feel pain. It's called a regulating technique. In fact, they feel pleasure. Imagine the pain inside of that child that they're willing to cut themselves because of parents that are neglectful towards their children. Do not neglect your children. Spend quality time with them. Not time in close proximity. Quality time with them. Speak to them. Hear their sentiments. Ask them questions. Care for them. Especially if they speak of their emotions. Today in America, we spend time in close proximity with one another, but not quality time. We don't spend quality time. Especially the fathers. They're always chasing money. Let's be real. They treat the home like a bed and breakfast. He's in at night, he sleeps in the morning, takes a shower, and he's out the door. Why? Because he wants to leave a fortune for his kids. And many of us, mashallah, we're leaving fortunes behind. Not for one generation, for three generations. But morally bankrupt generations. Kids, family. In fact, this child is counting the days. Well, my father, I thought he's going to leave by 70. He's 85 now. He's still around. Just waiting for the fortune. Need to go and buy me that Bentley. You think this is a joke? It's real. It is real. It's happening as we speak. Because the father was so neglectful of his kids. And all he thought was, my kids need money. Money does not buy you happiness. Money does not bring you joy. Money does not ensure peace within your family. Number two, abuse. <clears throat> Inshallah, there are no people abuse, physically abusing their children. But uh, the hadith from Rasulullah says that a glance from a parent that installs fear in their child's heart without a reason. You know what its punishment is? 75 smacks on the day of judgment. No, I'm joking, it's worse. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will make that parent afraid on the day of judgment. Allahu Akbar. Is it worth it? Yes, to discipline your... I'm not against disciplining your children. Sometimes you look at them in a way that is meant to discipline them. You speak to them in a way that's meant... To, why? Because you want to protect your kids. You as a parent, you have to protect your kids. I'm not against parents who say, no, alhamdulillah, let them, let them make mistakes, they'll learn, inshallah. And next thing you know, they're addicted to heroin. But while you give, listen to this, this is the most important thing for me to say. While you give them that glance, make sure they know it is out of love and compassion. You know, a child that's being abused, they don't have the appropriate language skills to speak of what's happening to them. They cannot communicate the pain. I'd have to conclude. Unfortunately, I had a few other points, but I want to say this. Three and four are very much related. Social media. Brothers, sisters, my younger friends, your friends on social media, the likes, the followers, it is all fake. Let me be real with you. It is all fake. Even if you have 1.5 million followers, 
They are fake. None of them are your friends. And unfortunately, one day you're going to have to wake up to this realization. Do not spend your precious hours trying to get likes and comments on Facebook and social media. They are meaningless. While we live in an era of tweeting and posting and comments and likes, what's happening to our youth? Go read the polls. Anxiety, depression, attempt for suicide is on the rise. Because we created this most dangerous tool and we put it in the hands of our children. Worse than drugs. Social media is the most destructive tool in the hands of our children today. You see, I read this article not long ago that explained why we get tired when we travel. You see, we shouldn't get, we shouldn't get so tired. Because let's say you're traveling six hours a day, six hours in a day, you end up going to the airport, you wait for your flight to board, you board the flight, then you get your luggage, you sit in the car, and you come home. It's not that difficult, you haven't done much. Why do you get so tired? You come home, you're like, I'm exhausted. It's traveling today, six hours. But a normal workday is six hours. It's because our mind, when we go to a new setting, constantly is vigilant. It scans, analyzes, scans, analyzes, scans, analyzes. Everybody on the plane, everybody in the waiting area, everybody at the airport, everybody at the luggage carousel. We don't know this, right? Psychiatrists are telling us that is why we get tired today when we travel. Now imagine what social media does to you, TikTok. Three seconds, five seconds, 20 seconds. That's all you can do. And you, you're constantly in this cycle of seeing something, analyzing it, fatiguing and frying your brain. Now try picking up a book. Can you read for four hours straight? You cannot. You know the damage that you're doing to yourself if you cannot read for four hours straight. If you cannot focus at school, people, selfish people are becoming billionaires off of you, destroying your future. Last but not least, brothers and sisters, the most important asset that you can give to yourself and your family and your children is to create a powerful community. Those are not my words. A close net, compassionate Community is the best gift that you could give to yourself because those people will attend your funeral. They'll attend your wedding. They'll attend to you when you're ill. They'll take care of you. They'll give you a loan. They'll look after you. They'll look after your kids. Not your friends on Facebook. And especially brothers and sisters, Especially if this community has come together under the banner of Sayyid al-Shuhada. The Shia Muslims are showing, are showing an example to the world that has not yet been witnessed in the course of history. I say this with full confidence. 20 million people in the city of Karbala, at the shrine of Imam al-Hussein, all of them are fed. All of them are taken care of. All of them sleep peacefully at night. You don't see fights break out. Why? Because it is the love of Imam al-Hussein. It is the love of Imam al-Hussein that does magic. That's brought millions of people together all around the world. And a night like this, millions of people are sitting and commemorating Imam al-Hussein. This is the best of communities. When you come together on the banner, under the banner of the Ahl al-Bayt. 
I help you not because of you, who you are, because you are a lover of Hussein. Because you bear the love of Imam al Hussein. Inni silmun liman salamakum. I am at peace with those who are at peace with you. And that's all that matters. You bear the love of Imam al Hussein, you're my brother. You're my sister. I'm here for you. Let us take our hearts and our souls to Karbala. To the Kaaba that belongs to the special ones. Those who bear the love of Sayyid al-Shuhada. Instead of the Kaaba that is in Mecca where we wear white. And we go there with a white ihram. Here we wear black to show a sign. To show our solidarity to his grandfather Rasulullah. To his father Amir al-Mu'mineen. To his mother Fatima al-Zahra. On a night like this, usually we recall the arrival of Imam al Hussein to Karbala. Allahu Akbar. Allahu Akbar. His camp was following the path towards Kufa. They reached a land. The horse of Imam al Hussein stopped. This is a signal from Allah. Ya Hussein. Ya Habibi. Ya Hussein. Ya Thar Allah wabna Tharih. This is the place for you. The horse would not move. Imam al Hussein disembarked. He rode another horse. It's not moving. He got on a camel. It's not moving. Imam al Hussein said, Go and call somebody that lives nearby. An old man came. He said to him, What is the name of this land? Ibn Rasulullah, it's called Naynawa. Does it have another name? They said, Yes, Ya Abu Abdullah. It has another name. It's called Karbala. What did he say? He raised his hands. Allahumma inni a'udhu bika. Min karbiha wa balaiha. We're going to camp here with my family. They camped. Then Imam al Hussein said, All Bani Hashim, my family, I want you to come with me. Because many of them, Imam al Hussein knew they were going to leave. But Bani Hashim were not going to leave him. His brother Abbas, his son Aliyun al Akbar, Qasim, the rest of Bani Hashim, the, the loyal of his companions, he took them. He took them and every one of them. He said, Ha huna yuqtalul qasim. Ha huna yuqtali aliyun al akbar. Ha huna. This is where Ali al akbar will fall. This is where. Until he went to the Euphrates, he looked at his brother Abbas. He said to him, Oh brother Abbas, this is where you will fall. But what was the biggest tragedy, brothers and sisters? When he went to a remote location and he told them this is where Aliyun al-Asghar Abdullah al-Radi' will be slain. Six months year old. When he arrived to Karbala brothers and sisters and he put out his tents, there was protection in the camp of Imam al-Hussein. Abbas was there, Aliyun al-Akbar was there, Bani Hashim were there. But I want to remind you of a moment. On the 10th of Muharram, a moment in the life of Zainab, where she was about to leave Karbala. She looked around at the soil of Karbala, at that land. She walked around she would not be able to determine who's who. The bodies slain, beheaded. She walked around trying to look for the body of her brother Hussein. How did she find the body of her brother Hussein? She reached the body, she looked at its hands, 
and she saw that one of the fingers have been amputated. She realized that was the body of her brother Hussein. Why? Because one of those Mal'oonin, when he came to the body of Imam Al Hussein, he could not take anything besides a ring on the body of Imam Al Hussein. That ring was stuck on the finger of Imam Al Hussein. What did he do? This guy got his dagger out and cut the finger of Aba Abdullah. Ya Sayyidana wa Maulana Inna tawajjahna Wastashfa'na Watawassalna Bika ilallah وَقَدَّمْنَاكَ بَيْنَ يَدَيْ حَاجَاتِنَا Brothers, sisters, especially the young men, release your voice for Imam Al-Husayn. يَا وَجِيهًا عِنْدَ اللَّهِ Louder, louder, brothers, sisters. Ya wajihan inda Allah Everyone, second floor, people standing outside, everyone all together, especially for those who have special hajat, ill ones, those who asked us for their dua. Ya wajihan inda Allah One line and I'll conclude. When Sayyida Zainab put everyone on the back of the camels, she stood there. There was no one to help Sayyida Zainab get on her camel. So she looked towards the Euphrates where the amputated hands of Abu al-Fadl had fallen. She says, Akhi Abbas, man jibitni. Oh Abbas, were you not the one that brought me to Karbala? Take us back now to the city of my grandfather, Rasulullah. Then there was, of course, no response from Abel Fadl Abbas. The last thing that she said, she looked towards Medina. She said, Ya Rasulullah, alayka minni salam. Hada Husaynun bil ara. Makhdub al imamati wal rida. Oh, Ya Rasulullah, this is the sacrifice that we have to offer to you. Hussein, your beloved slain on the lands of. Karbala. One more time, brothers and sisters. We will do this every night before I hand over to our dear brother Nuri. Labbaika ya Hussein. Labbaika ya Hussein. Labbaika ya Hussein. Labbaika ya Hussein. Where are the lovers of Hussein, the soldiers of Hussein? Labbaika ya Hussein, Labbaika ya Hussein. Labbaika ya Hussein, Labbaika ya Hussein. 